Scripture lesson this morning, we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We are currently in the fourth servant song. That puts us in Isaiah 53. Our text for the sermon then is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. But as with last week, we will read the whole song. So if you would back up just a little bit, I'll actually start our scripture reading at Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, And acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So far, our reading in God's word this morning. Let's ask his blessing now on our study of it. Heavenly Father, We pray that you would give us the illumination of the Spirit 
to understand, but also to care about, to believe and to cling to what we learn here of Jesus Christ. Please let his grace and glory be displayed before us. In his name we pray. Amen. Rejection hurts. Rejection, especially by those who ought to have welcomed you and loved you, hurts. I don't doubt that most of you know that from your own experience. It's also the experience reflected in some of the Psalms, for example, like Psalm 56, where David describes the betrayal and the rejection of his own close friend. Rejection is part of the catalog of human suffering that was undertaken by Jesus Christ as he was incarnate and lived among us and shouldered the description, took upon himself the mantle of this suffering servant that had been so long before prophesied. Rejection is the main idea of the stanza we are considering this morning. Chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Uh, You may recall that we said last week as we entered into this final and fullest, most essential of the servant songs in Isaiah, that there are basically five stanzas, five groupings of verses, and they're arranged in a symmetrical kind of way. You begin with a stanza about the ultimate outcome of the servant's work, about the gospel message and the sprinkling of the nations and the exaltation of Jesus. So you start with the outcome, and then you get a story stanza that explains what actually happens with this servant. Then you get the meaning stanza in the middle that really explains conceptually, that explains in gospel terms what was happening there. And then you step back out in the same order. Then you have another story stanza in verses 7 through 9. And then you have another outcome stanza in verses 10 through 12. That means today what we're looking at is the first of those story stanzas, those poetic descriptions in which you can nonetheless trace something of the actual lived experience of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who redeemed God's people. I'll read verses 1 through 3 again for us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Basically, just to take those verses in order, I would make these observations about the rejection of God's suffering servant, Jesus Christ. First, the suffering servant was rejected as doubtful. Second, the suffering servant was rejected as improbable. And third, the suffering servant was rejected as contemptible. In the first place then, Jesus, the suffering servant, was rejected in the course of his own coming, his own incarnation, his own work, his own heralding on earth. He was rejected as doubtful. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are rhetorical questions, the implied answer to which is practically nobody. And even the we or the us who are speaking this now, this believing remnant that Isaiah is identifying himself with, even they at one point were among those who rejected this suffering servant. We esteemed him not, we're going to read in verse 3. And ultimately, it was our transgressions for which he suffered. We will find in future stanzas. It seemed impossible that the arm of the Lord, that expression of his great history-changing power, could possibly be manifested in this child who grew up in Nazareth. The arm of the Lord was something that was mighty, that even if it wasn't a literal physical thing, you could see the arm of the Lord liberated his people. The arm of the Lord brought on Pharaoh and Egypt, great trials, signs, and wonders, all performed, as Deuteronomy 7 says, or as we heard in Deuteronomy 5, all performed by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord your God. This arm of the Lord, this intervention to, to change not just the historical circumstances of God's people, the suffering of the Jews back in Isaiah's generation, but a desire that ultimately salvation would come in spiritual and eternal terms for all mankind. That's been longed for in Isaiah. For instance, 51 verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And now Isaiah can see prophetically that the arm of the Lord is going to be not just a metaphor, but a person. The strength of the Lord intervening in history is going to be God incarnate, and yet he will be so hard to believe. This is the power of God. This is the Red Sea parting, Pharaoh slaying. This is to be the, the nation upheaving and promised land granting power of God to change world history. To whom has that been revealed? Who, who understood that? Who would possibly have gotten that as they saw Jesus walking by during his lifetime? So who has believed what he heard from us, uh, who has believed what we've been testifying to now as this believing remnants Isaiah positions himself with that in retrospect can say, we didn't believe it either and now no one's believing us. This same expression of doubt, uh, the inability to believe news that is so strange or so good that you can't take it in, uh, shows up in the New Testament where this verse is quoted. One of those places is in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 10, rather, where Paul says, They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us. The greatest of news was presented in Romans 10 to the Jewish people, that of their own hopes met, their own Messiah come, and yet who has believed what he heard. And Jesus himself, more directly, has his message rejected in John 12. You might remember in John 12, that's where Jesus has endured increasing hostility, increasing uh, scheming and malice from the Jewish leadership, and finally now, as things get worse and worse between himself and the Jews in Jerusalem, now some, some Greek speakers arrive, and they want to see Jesus, and it's like suddenly it becomes clear that the, the time of decision has come, and, and Jesus speaks about 
how he was going to now have to be lifted up. Now he will draw the peoples of the world to himself. Now he will have to turn away from those who have refused to accept him and to accept the news about him. He will depart and hide himself from them, in the words of John 12, 36. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, rhetorically, practically nobody, and not those to whom it should have made sense and should have been revealed. John 12, 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And that's the conclusion to Jesus' ministry, at least in public. Very next chapter, you're in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. So you can see this repeated pattern of the good news of Jesus not being really accepted, really heard, until or unless God actually reveals it. And that's something I want to point out here. Believing what he has heard, believing the gospel reports about Christ, and having the arm of the Lord revealed are parallel here. No one's believing because no one's really had it revealed to them. Now, sure, lots of people had seen Jesus with their own eyes during his lifetime. Lots of people had read prophetic predictions like this one. But the revelation we're talking about here now must be deeper. It must be something that genuinely convicts and turns you from a despiser into a mourning, lamenting, acknowledger of Jesus Christ. You see, unless the Lord reveals something to your heart, unless he reveals something to your mind, who will believe? This doesn't fit into any kind of human desires or expectations. Who has believed this gospel news? Faith, you see, is a gift of God. And if you are among those who can say, We formerly despised him. We loaded unto him our guilt. But now we are those who are offering this report, this news. It's because God has changed you. So the suffering servant was rejected as doubtful. And then in verse 2, he's rejected as improbable. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, that description can cut a couple of different ways. If you remember our study in Isaiah, that sounds very similar to some of the promises that have been attached to the coming of Messiah. Uh, For instance, Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the last great day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So he's the branch. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, we're told specifically, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's a description of Messiah who will bring the the glory and, and the abundance of the end to us. And yet these terms, young plants and a root out of dry ground can just as easily be misconstrued. Uh, Young plants or sapling is also the word in Hebrew for like a sucker that grows up on the side of a tree. And while if you're waiting for a dead stump to come back to life, that might be an extremely hopeful image, if you think everything's just fine with your tree and you see a little sucker coming up the side of it, that's something that's annoying, that's to be gotten rid of. 
Likewise, a root, you might be encouraged, unless it's growing out of dry ground. It's growing where it doesn't belong and, and in miserable, unlikely circumstances. These are descriptions, then, of the humble birth, of the obscure life, of the lowly station of Jesus Christ. As he grows up in the sight of God, as he grows up obscured to the eyes of men, he's like this little shoot that some people think doesn't belong there, or a root in the most unpromising of places. He has no former majesty either that we should look at him. Uh, the word form here, it's like um, King Saul, who was impressive looking. He looked like a king, right? And then when his successor was to be anointed, Samuel was looking for someone who had the same kind of form, and, and God told him not to do that. But still, David appeared as a man who had that form or appearance in 1 Samuel 16. David, too, looked the part of a king. He had a beautiful form, we are told. And yet that's not the case with David's son and Israel's hope, Jesus Christ. If you had met Jesus on the road, you might have missed him. If you looked for him in a crowd, you would not have been able to pick him out. You know, I think we might be tempted to imagine Jesus as standing a foot taller than everyone else, and maybe having a faint glow around his head, or having some kind of piercing eyes that you would, you know, be afraid to look at. He looked just like anybody else. He endured all the common miseries, hardships, and now obscurity and even rejection that anyone else would have. No form or majesty, no beauty for us to desire. And therefore he is, of course, met with skepticism, met with disappointment. This can't possibly be the one that we are waiting for. This is the one whose parents we know. You see his miracles not having an impact. You see his family members misjudging him, his mother and his brothers. You see John the Baptist growing uncertain about him. You see the Samaritan woman totally oblivious to who he is. There's nothing in his outward appearance that would indicate that he is the carrier of Israel's hopes. Don't underestimate the fullness of Christ's incarnation. He took on a human body with all its common infirmities, to use the confessional language. He knew what it was like to be, yes, insulted, beaten, spit on the things we're reading about here, but also he knew what it was like to endure sickness, pain. He knew what headaches were like. He knew what stubbed toes were like. He knew what hunger was like. He lived among us in the most unremarkable way. And by the way, this should be a reminder. As you broaden the concept of Jesus not having some kind of outward beauty, not just that he was fully incarnate and fully one of us so that he could fully take in our suffering, but also it should remind us that when we introduce other people to Jesus Christ, they won't necessarily be bowled over by the fact that you serve such a Savior. Hopefully the word has spoken to you with convicting power and given you faith. But lots of people can read the book. Lots of people looked him in the face in his life. Lots of people ate bread and fish from his hand and were unconvinced that this was anybody special. The suffering servant was rejected as improbable. And if we find him as anything but that, we need to thank the Lord for revealing him to us. And then thirdly, the suffering servant was rejected as contemptible, verse 3. 
He wasn't just overlooked, but he was despised and rejected by men. He was held in contempt. He was dismissed and mocked. Rejected means he was lacking of men. He was cut off and abandoned, in other words. Not only did he have few followers, but those he did have fled him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief speaks not only to the emotion of sorrow, not only to inner turmoil, but also acquainted with grief can cover all kinds of ailments, including grave physical sickness. So he was rejected. He was emotionally and physically suffering, and people said, no. We hid our faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Jesus himself told a parable about this. He he talked about his rejection by his own people in the parable of the vineyard, whose tenants abused one messenger from God after another until finally the Lord of the vineyard sent his own son And they said, this is the heir, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Jesus applies here, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He understood his own rejection, his own being treated with contempt, his being laded with emotional and physical grief, being burdened as part of his calling, part of what was to be expected when God's own son appeared. Acts chapter 7, Stephen says the same thing. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in your heart and ears who resist the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Jesus, that is, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Or to sum it up, as John chapter 1 does, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Rejected by men, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just some of the time, rejected by men. An outcast, filled with sorrow. It's supposed to be the wicked who are filled with sorrow, right? Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But Jesus Christ, the innocent one, who will stand in for the wicked and have pity on those who rejected him, he takes into himself all of this contempt and abandonment and grief and pain. In his very act of doing so, we misunderstood. We thought he was disqualified and even cursed of God. We thought he must have deserved it somehow, Isaiah is saying. Presenting Jesus Christ, you see, is going to be offensive. Not just because it looks so improbable that the creator of the world would become an unassuming Jew in a particular place and time, born to a woman and laid in a you know, cow's feeding trough. But also because... What he came to do to take on our sorrows and to be rejected speaks to the outcome of our sin that he was bearing. When we look at Jesus Christ rejected, 
and spit on and crucified, we are looking at something about ourselves. We're looking about what our sin deserves. We're looking at how costly it is to redeem us from what we're so used to. So Jesus Christ will continue to be offensive, especially Jesus Christ crucified. If you would understand this Savior, first of all, acknowledge where your own sorrows and griefs come from. Acknowledge what kind of misery and rejection you deserve. And then start to understand why Jesus would undertake the role of suffering he undertook. It was for us, as we'll see in the next stanza. For now, though, I'd like to point out one more thing about the rejection of Jesus, the way he was despised and held in contempt by so many people, rich, poor, powerful, powerless alike. I'd like to point out that we are called in Scripture to accept his rejection as his followers. We are to accept his rejection in some measure, as our own. We, of course, do not atone for sin. We do not stand in for anyone else. We don't endure others' penalties. But we do follow the pattern of Christ. And that includes his being despised and rejected, being hated by the world, as he says in John 15. Or to describe it in Hebrews 13 terms, having to go to him outside the camp. Hebrews, remember, is telling its readers to stick with Jesus Christ even though he is still being despised and rejected by your synagogue, by your family members, by your boss, and all of them want to make your life miserable and mock you. Accept that, Hebrews says, because Jesus Christ is worth it. And follow him anyway. It says, we have an altar, Hebrews 13, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, in a position of being despised and rejected. And therefore, Hebrews 13.13 says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There are many different aspects of coming to the Lord's table and communing with Jesus in a visible way that we could consider this morning. But I would invite you to consider this one. That you are siding with, identifying with, communing with somebody who is utterly despised and rejected, who has endured great shame, whose day of vindication has in some measure come, but not everyone has seen it, heard it, believed it. Not everyone has had it revealed to their heart yet. And therefore, as you come to this table, you are, in effect, going outside the camp. You are saying, yes, this is where my lot is cast. This is my Savior, and I am willing to bear his reproach. Because there will surely be reproach for Christ in this world. The suffering servant was rejected as doubtful. What a wild and crazy piece of news. The suffering servant was rejected as improbable. That little sucker thing. And the suffering servant was rejected as contemptible. 
made to endure every kind of reproach. Let's be grateful that he was willing to do these things as one of us, to do these things in our behalf, whose sufferings now are redeemed and limited. And let's also be willing to join him in his reproach. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great humility and humiliation of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he who deserved all praises unendingly from men and angels came to be misunderstood and held in contempt. Well, Father, we confess that we were among this we, that apart from your revelation, we would not believe this report. We would not side with Christ. Thank you for giving us faith, and please now strengthen that faith as we commune with our rejected Savior. In him we pray. Amen.